Welcome to Afternoon Delight, an ongoing conversation about branding, leadership, and most importantly, love. I'm Jay Rendon in San Francisco, and I'm joined by my co-host, Eric Solomon in New York City. Eric, good afternoon. How are you? Good afternoon, Jay. I'm doing great today. How about you? Fantastic. All right. We are uh, closing out today the third in our mini-series on origin stories. Mm -hmm. I sort of feel like we're finishing the Lord of the Rings trilogy we set out to do. and But I'm also excited just because the first two sort of set the table, and now we're actually going to talk about how this idea of an origin story translates to not just the companies we work with, but really all brands, whether they actively wrestle with, think about their origin stories or not they indirectly are influenced by them. So Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. I agree. This is, uh, to me, one of the, if not the most exciting things about what we do. And having a, a few minutes to talk about it with uh, somebody that does it well is a pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate the compliment. But um, I, to the degree that I do it well, it's just because I find it so interesting. But before we dive into that, uh, we have a non sequitur that you wanted to share. I do. And again, this is, I think our, our non sequiturs are getting to be a little bit in the, in the space of sequitur, but that's okay. I think it's okay. Yeah. Um, maybe because we're constantly thinking about these things, but this one comes from the wide, wide world of television, in particular, HBO's High Maintenance, which for anyone that hasn't watched that show, I can highly recommend it, even if you're not into marijuana. Yes. Because the show really is about a pot dealer and his adventures in New York City. And I think it's high art in a lot of ways. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it's great. And I was really thinking about it this week because I, I saw a recent episode. It might be the last episode, I'm not sure, but it was told in almost entirely from the point of view of a cigarette lighter, or in this case, I guess, a marijuana lighter. And it starts at this church camp where one of the girls that is participating sneaks off with another girl so they can light one up with this lighter. And you think, oh, this will be interesting. But then you start to realize that the lighter is the star of the story. And you start to see this lighter go on its journey from not just this little girl at church camp, but then later as a 20-something in a laundromat. And then she leaves it there and somebody else picks it up. And eventually the wrapper starts to get peeled off and somebody paints it. And the whole time you're kind of following this journey of the lighter. And it just got me thinking that, you know, what an incredible thing to do to be able to tell a story, a narrative with something as mundane and small as a kind of nondescript lighter. And I just thought it was so cool. And I wasn't even smoking marijuana when I watched it. So <laughs> it was just a, a really beautiful piece of art. So to some extent, it's a non sequitur. But then again, it is about how everything can have a story. Yeah, I, lo I love that. And that is such a great show. It, along with another show, Atlanta, yep. both are so well crafted and both are doing really interesting things with the nature of storytelling in general and storytelling more specifically in the, the medium of television. They break and or bend the conventions in really interesting ways. And as you said, in, in many instances, achieve the level of art. It's not just entertainment, but they really do create stories that are beautiful and so human and reflective of 
the human experience, not just potheads. <laughs> yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with that. Not that there's anything wrong with that. And uh, we're saying this and we're not even being paid by HBO or FX. So uh, No, but if they would like to pay us, that's fine. All right. Well, that sets us up well to, to get into the meat of things. What do you think? Absolutely. Let's talk about origin stories as it pertains to brands. Okay. When we talk about origin stories and when we're talking about brand origin stories, what are some classic ones? What are ones that pop to mind for you? So the origin story nowadays, of course, if you say that phrase, in general, people think of the superhero stories. There's a multi-billion dollar industry out there around just telling superhero origin stories. Of course, superhero origin stories are based on the original storytelling that, that humans have always done, which is about the myths and legends yeah. that speak to us at a very human level that help us explain the world that we live in and how it works. And as such, that type of storytelling is one part truth and one part fable. And I think that's an important combination to keep in mind when we think of brand origin stories, hmm. because I think the best brand origin stories, of course, try and capture something that actually happened. A why. Why did this company start? Why did a set of founders come together? But uh, a good story doesn't let the facts get in the way. Um, and so the the stories... I just, I love that line of never let the facts get in the way. I think... Uh, you know, taken taken to the extreme, it's not a good thing. But when it comes right. to origin yeah. stories, yeah. it's great. Well, and yeah, when it comes to storytelling in general, uh, I think it's 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 great. <laughs> but anyway, to get back to your question about what are some classic brand origin stories? Well, living in the Bay Area, it's hard not to think of the garage. There's so many companies out here that were started quote unquote in the garage, but HP. There was a actual garage at the beginning of yeah. HP. Now, Goodby, place that both you and I have worked at, yeah. really kind of explored the origin story as an expression of the HP brand. But even before that, the idea of the garage was the kind of place that tinkerers go to make things, a place filled with ingenuity. And I think those are all elements that were aspects then and to some degree are still aspects of the HP brand. Do you think uh, Larry and uh, Sergey uh, stole the garage idea from HP or was that just a different garage? Um, you know, there are many garages. <laughs> Silicon Valley is littered with many literal and figurative garages from HP to Google to Facebook and many, many others in between. That That is why it's such a powerful myth. It is Silicon Valley's version of rags to riches, the starting from nothing and, and building an empire. Yeah. that That's the classic uh, story, at least the first one that comes to mind for me. You know, Apple's, uh, there, was, there's, there was an Apple garage as well. But when I think of Apple's origin story, that's not the aspect that speaks to me. I think of Steve Jobs' infamous field trip to the Xerox Park campus, where he saw early prototypes for a lot of the things that would inform early version of the Macintosh, the mouse and the graphical user interface, which is a complicated story that is befitting of a complicated man. But what I love about that story was it actually points to what I think his genius and the genius of the organization that he helped build was it wasn't just about ideas, but about the context of ideas. Apple didn't invent mobile phones. Apple didn't invent 
MP3 players. They didn't invent computers, but they made us want those things or want to experience those things more than anyone else. And I think that that context, when we're talking about a brand and the origin story of that field trip is key to what the Apple organization has always cared about. Totally agree. I totally agree. But you know, Jay, I'm I'm a New Yorker now. So take me out of the valley. Give me one more outside of Silicon Valley. Another favorite of mine is Virgin. Uh Talk about a brand that has been applied to so many different types of business. And yet, first iteration of the Virgin brand and, and the name was the founders opening up a record store and admitting to themselves but also wanting to admit publicly that they were virgins in business. They had no idea what they were doing, and yet that didn't stop them. And so that youthful exuberance, that sort of ignorance is bliss aesthetic, Mm -hmm. has – in one way or another, continued to inform that brand decades later. Well, you listen, you've convinced me, and I'm sure there are tons of examples that, you know, of, of these origin stories. But I think really the question that we got to get to is if you're a good brand or any brand that's even starting out or that has any momentum, has got one of these stories, but why is this so important? Why is an origin story important for a brand? It's a great question. You know, the the, the origin story is not the brand. Mm-hmm. It's important to sort of say that at the outset. And I will even concede that the origin story may not be the most important thing about the brand, particularly for organizations that have been around a long time. Having said that, I think that the origin story is an important place, at least for us, when we're working with brands, it's the first place that I like to investigate. Yeah. I've said this before to you that um, I, I try not to think of myself or I don't really think of myself as a creative that's trying to create something, but more as an archaeologist or an investigator that's trying to uncover something, try and figure something out. Mm-hmm. And as such, the origin story is the scene of the crime. I like that. Right. It's, it's probably not where I'm going to 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 find all the evidence, but it's a good place to start. Um, there's a lot that you can figure out about the brand by asking, why did the founders start this place? What problem were they trying to solve? Yeah. And so in that regard, I think it's at the very least, I'll say it's important to us, but I, in my experience, I've yet to work with a brand where I didn't get some value by exploring that. And I think there's a really good reason for that. And that is that when people start organizations, those people have a clarity of vision, of purpose, and ambition. Um, even if they start a business because they want to get filthy rich, they also start the business for some other reason. They might be pissed off about something. They might see something that's incredibly broken out in the world. They might be really excited about uh, the prospect of a new technology or a new idea. They may feel a tremendous amount of responsibility for something. All of those are, in one form or another, acts of passion. And I think that even if that really speaks more towards that individual's motivations, I find that those always are reflected in the brand years, decades later, in some way or another, often in very oblique ways, but reflections nonetheless. I think that's really, I mean, it's interesting. There are honestly a lot of a lot of podcasts, like Jim Stangle's got a podcast that talks about purpose and sure. other people do. But what I really love about the way that you're talking about it is I've never heard anybody talk about it as this origin story 
as opposed to just uncovering a line of purpose or uncovering a North Star, what are the nature of origin stories? You know, how do they come to be? What is well, it like? I think that origin stories at the end of the day are stories about becoming something. Uh, the hero's journey is sort of the classic um the archetype for for this type of stories. And as humans, we're predisposed to those types of stories where someone starts from nothing, faces challenges along the way, and then perseveres. That's it's the tale old as time. And founders are also cognizant in the moment that they're forming their own origin stories nowadays, and they're aware of what they're doing. And they're aware of how others have started companies and they are thinking about those things. And in the type of work that we do, it's great because later it becomes harder to tease out from company leaders mm -hmm. uh, after they've hired a thousand employees, after they've bought other businesses and you ask them, why did you start this company? A lot of uh, C-level executives struggle to answer that in a way that is personal, meaningful, foundational to the original vision. So going back to the origin stories, everyone sort of intuitively grasps that. And so that becomes important for us and fruitful for the type of work we do. And I guess, you know, so many, so many questions kind of pop up, but, um, you know, I guess what does a origin story allow a brand or a company to do? You know, once you once you got one, what do you do with it? Well, it can, and can is the operative word there. It can make other decisions that the organization makes clearer and easier. Um, again, the origin story is not the sum total of the brand. It may inform a large part of the brand, but again, it, it is a, oftentimes the point in an organization's time where they're most clear about their purpose and connecting that dot to another decision they need to make, looking back at that is uh, always, I think, a consideration. Is this what we've always been trying to do? And in some cases, the answer is no. And you know, to go back to HP, HP has evolved a lot since the days of the garage. Obviously, they've split into two companies. They right. bought many companies along the way and, and uh, sold uh, others. Uh, mm -hmm. They're in businesses that the founders probably could never have conceived. I do think that there are things that if you were to ask the leaders of uh, HP today, are there truths that were true in the garage then that are true now? I think – Without question, they would say, yes, we might disagree as to what those truths are. But I do think that those can make decisions that, that you make a, a bit easier. Mm -hmm. The other thing, of course, is the origin story's impact on the internal culture of an organization. Ah, uh, yeah. And there, too, there are a lot of tales of organizations that started off being one thing and became another and, and believed one thing and believed another. But we highlight those because we identify that as a part of their story, they either evolved or they walked away from something that they believed was true at one point. And narratively, that feels like something unresolved for us as consumers of company narratives, which, by the way, I think I think we all are. I think we're all consumers of companies' narratives. And when something rings false about a company's story, they behave in a way that doesn't seem appropriate, doesn't seem consistent with where they came from. The fact that it stands out in such uh, with such starkness is an indication that the origin is important. No, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, you especially with awareness. 
being what it is these days, if a if a company does something that doesn't align to you know what they say they're going to do or what they've put out in the world, people call bullshit on that really fast. Yeah, you know it's interesting, and 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 a lot of the language that you've been using to describe these origin stories talked a lot about founders, and you've talked a lot about people that have started these companies or these brands. How do you describe, I guess, that link between the founder or the person or the people that are starting that company and the brand itself? Is there a link? And if so, what is it? There's definitely a link, but it's a problematic link because there are many instances where the brand of the founder casts a shadow over the brand of the organization. Mm. And what invariably happens is the founder goes away. (laughs) (laughs) They're either fired by the board, they pass away, the company gets sold, they retire. You know, the founder's never going to always be there forever. So you need to make sure that when you're thinking about the brand, that the brand and the founder reflect each other without being perfect reflections of each other. Mm. The brand needs to be bigger than the person. And that is a very fine line to walk, but an important one. Yeah, I can imagine some egos might get in the way of that. Absolutely. If applied the wrong way. You know, it's interesting. We talk about this as if it's this kind of Pollyanna-like situation and Eureka, you've got an origin story. Let's go out and and tell the world. But are there cases where we're doing this kind of send somebody down a wrong path or a path that doesn't lead them anywhere productive? I guess that depends on your intention. Yeah. Um, A lot of times people assume that looking at the origin story, you're looking for answers. If you're looking for answers, then that can be unhelpful and distracting at the very least. Agree. However, if you're looking for understanding or inspiration, then I think it's always useful. Uh, that totally makes sense. The other the other piece of that I can imagine is that it can be tempting maybe to, to stop at that origin story and say, we've got it. But is there a danger to doing that? Yeah, yeah. Because then you're, you've, you've cast the brand in amber, right? It's stuck in a yeah. certain place. And there can be power in that. The problem is, is that Uh, We live in a world that is constantly changing and constantly changing faster. And long is the list of brands that were once very powerful in their articulation and very clear about who they were and now feel of another time. And, and so that, that's the danger. And actually one of my, one of the brands that I've had the privilege of working on that was really powerful that I think now struggles with that a bit is William Sonoma. Paul, the the cooking, uh, cooking supplies and whatnot. Yeah. 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 Uh, So Paul and I got to work with William Sonoma for a number of years across a number of the brands. William Sonoma also owned Pottery Barn and uh, West Elm and a number of other brands, but they were started by, as, as you said, as a, as a place, um, in the, I want to say late fifties, early sixties. I should know this, um, (laughs) by Chuck Williams, who opened a small store in the town of Sonoma here in Northern California, where he would sell cooking supplies, largely cooking supplies that he would source from France. 
And he would sell these pots, pans, utensils, different types of food to people who at the time, cooking was a uh, a chore. It was not, they didn't think of cooking in the 60s the way we think of cooking now. We don't, we don't think of food the way people in the 60s thought of food. But he did. And that was largely because of his experiences after the war in Europe and more specifically in France, where he really got to appreciate uh, well-made food. And he came back with this mission of, I want to get people in the U.S. cooking. Now, this happened coincidentally around the same time that Julia Child was rising. And they, the two of them knew each other and collaborated on numerous books. And mm. they fed off each other. She would teach people to cook. And then they would come into his store and he would not just sell them the things, but a big part of what his mission of get people cooking, that idea, that at its core, that's a story of engagement. He realized, oh, I'm going to try and get them engaged in the store. So it's not just they'll come in here and buy something, but we'll come in and I'll do cooking demonstrations in the store. I want them to pick up the pots. The the the, uten- the things won't be in boxes. They'll be up on shelves where they can pick them up and touch them. We'll have recipes uh, on hand. He really wanted to make it engaging because he understood you speaking at the time to a largely uh um uneducated audience in terms of the level of cooking that he was particularly interested in. So it informed his store design. Later that also informed how they addressed their what their uh, most valuable piece of advertising was, which was their catalog. Mm-hmm. And so the catalog was filled with not just photography that felt very uh, almost documentary in in how it was trying to capture the process of cooking, but the rest the the catalog was filled with recipes and entertainment ideas. Yeah, he wanted to sort of engage people, not just sell them equipment. By the time we Got to work with the brand. Uh, Chuck Williams was still alive. But that spirit of the engagement remained. And so when we, in the websites that we created and in the annual reports we did, there was always this sense of how can we make it interactive? We Mm -hmm. don't want to just push content out to people. We want them to engage with it. We want them to make it feel like they're having a conversation and they're learning and experiencing this. And so as I trace the origin story from the beginning to – where they were when we were working with them, it was very much taking his idea of we need to get people cooking. We need to get them engaged. It's an active story. And he was always very passionate about that. And the organization really embraced that. That's super, that's super interesting. I mean, I, I'm trying to remember, I think it's Williams-Sonoma where you walk in and they always have something cooking yeah. in the store. So you smell this amazing smell and it just makes you hungry. Yeah. Is that, yeah. is that, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, they sell foodstuffs from all over the world. And, and so you can, you know, pick up pastas and uh, spices from, from different places. And of course, nowadays, uh, in the last 20 years, retail in general has changed a lot. Yeah. It has, has Im- impacted uh, their business uh, significantly. But I think the other thing that happened is there have been a number of other brands that have emerged, some of them coming out of traditional media, but others sort of just coming out organically that have taken this idea of educating people about cooking and the possibilities and making the experience very visceral and engaging in ways that Williams-Sonoma, I think, 
you know, they, they started, a, they, they owned that and almost owned it unto themselves. There was really no one else that occupied that space. But food culture evolved. Sure has. Uh, in the last 30 years, in the last generation. And they, as, as I was saying, there are certain brands that they cast themselves in amber. And it's for me, as someone who's so involved with the brand professionally, but also personally, they were a brand that I admired and, and looked towards. And I think they've ceded that position to, to others. You know, that's a great example of, of a classic brand that, as you say, is maybe crystallized in amber. You know, Jay, this has been a, a fascinating discussion. Um, I think a, a kind of a perfect way to wrap up our three-part series on origin stories. Uh, any kind of parting words for our listeners? We talked about the, these last three stories as being part of a series. But really, I think the first six episodes that we've done have, in some ways, been setting the table. We've covered a lot of ground in terms of explaining who we are, how we think, how we see the world and how that informs the work that we do. I'm looking forward now to seeing how we expand on that conversation and start addressing uh, other topics. So I'm really looking forward to chapter two of Afternoon Delight. I can't wait. And uh, I know some people out there, well, at least my mother, she can't wait either. So uh, at least we've got that. Hi, Eric's mom. (laughs) Hey, Carol. All right. Have a great afternoon, Jay. All right. You too. Thanks, Eric. Good to talk to you. This has been Jay Rendon and Eric Solomon for Afternoon Delight, a Novio Brandcast. If listening to us has been indeed a delight, please subscribe, review, and rate us on whatever podcast platform you're partial to. To make a connection, give us feedback, ask a question, even just say hi. You can email us at pod at novio.com, visit us at novio.com slash afternoon delight, or find us on Twitter at afternooner. Thanks so much for listening.